Welcome to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. We pray this message leads you both to know and show the love of Christ in all areas of life. We will now dive into our scripture reading, followed by this week's message. Today, God speaks to us from Genesis chapter 15, verses 15 to 35. 一天,你班對他說,雖然我們是親戚,也不能讓你白白地替我工作,告訴我,你希望得到什麼報酬。於是對拉班說,我願意為你工作七年,請你把拉傑給許配我。拉班說,把他嫁給你比嫁給外人好,你就留下來吧。期限已經滿了,現在請幫我妻子給我,我好和他同房。於是拉班就擺設宴席款待當地的人,到了晚上,拉班卻把女兒尼亞給亞各,亞各和他同房。拉班又把自己的婢女,招拍送給女兒,做
that there is always a bit of a tension when we are trying to define and understand love. Uh, I don't just mean that the word love as a, as a definition uh, is hard to articulate given that in our language, uh, I use the same word to describe my affection for chicken wings that I use to also describe my affection for my wife. Uh, that word just, it, it, we use it in so many different ways. Um, but even more than that, even more than just maybe the, the way that we define the word, uh, something that comes to mind for me when, when I'm thinking about the tension is that love we recognize is something that is vital to our experience of life. It's vital to a quality of life, experiencing love. And yet, though that is true, love also so often feels elusive. So often it can feel as though it's just out of our reach, or if we do find these moments where we are able to grab it, where we do actually reach these experiences of love, we then have the experience of losing that love. It can be a difficult thing to understand exactly what it is and why it matters so much to us. Friendships and marriages and children and all other kinds of relationships, we begin to realize can't actually fulfill what we desire because we're always right on the verge, it seems, of losing the love that exists and that's experienced there. Which brings me back again to the real conundrum of love. Why is it so central to life and yet so hard to find, constantly feeling elusive? And when we do attain it, it seems impossible at times to actually sustain it. Well, Today, we are going to continue our series called The Matriarchs. Uh, in this series, we have been looking at the mothers of Jesus, the women in the line of Jesus, all of which will eventually lead us to the Advent season where we will be looking at uh, Jesus' genealogy in Matthew 1. Uh, last week, we began uh, looking at Sarah. Uh, I'm sorry, two weeks ago, we looked at Sarah. Last week, we began, uh, we continued rather looking at Rebecca, and today, we're going to take a look at Leah. Uh, in the story of Leah, we find insight, actually, into why love is so central to our experience as humans, uh, but why also it can so often feel elusive. And that so often love is ultimately, the love that we experience is so often designed to do something different than we often assume it uh, to do. And so, with all that in mind, let's consider love by looking at this story, and in particular, looking at three things, taking a look at the deception of love, the heartbreak of love, and then finally, the telos, the ultimate aim of love. Okay, so first, uh, the deception of love. Uh, I want to ensure that we know exactly what's happening here in um, chapter 29 of our story, uh, particularly if those of you who don't speak Cantonese uh, weren't able to quite follow along. Uh, thank you so much, Hallie, for sticking it out uh, with us for that longer passage. But uh, Jacob, here in our passage, is, uh, if you know the story, is the youngest son of Isaac and Rebekah, uh, Rebekah being the woman that we looked at last week. Uh, if you know their story, Jacob who uh, was the youngest of two sons, uh, and he was uh, the son that his father didn't think that much of, uh, largely because Jacob didn't possess many of the more masculine qualities, uh, qualities better embodied in his brother, his older brother, Esau. Esau was a very strong uh, individual. But though Isaac did not think much of Jacob, Jacob was 
very much loved by his mother, Rebecca. And so in order to elevate her youngest son, the two of them uh, devise a plan to trick both Esau uh, and Isaac into giving uh, uh, Jacob the birthright blessing and the inheritance, uh, which should have gone and uh, would have, we would have assumed to have gone to Esau, the older brother. Now, interestingly, Jacob's name, which literally means uh, to follow or to be behind, it would eventually become known as the, the, the supplanter or the deceiver. Jacob, he grows up in this environment where there's these schemes taking place and deception began to become very much part of Jacob's identity. Now, as a result of this deception of, uh, their, of Isaac, his father, uh, his father is very disoriented by this ploy. He's heartbroken that he's been deceived. And then Jacob, the one who has been tricked out of this birthright blessing and inheritance, he's furious and he desires to kill Jacob. And so at the advice of his mother, Jacob flees and ends up in the home of Laban. Uh, and it's here where our passage starts um, this next kind of chapter of Jacob's life, which now uh, will be taking place in the house of Laban. Now, Laban is another very interesting character. Uh, we first meet Laban back in chapter 24, and we see there that he's a man who is very focused on wealth, and he's very focused on doing whatever is necessary to position himself as one who would gain wealth. Uh, we see clues of that uh, at the end of chapter 24, and then we see it again here in our passage where the, the author's giving us a bit of a glimpse into the greed and even coldness of Laban and his willingness to use other people to get what he wants. It's fascinating at this point in the story that Jacob the deceiver has now moved into and entered the home of Laban the greedy. Now there are two other characters that now begin to be impacted by these two men, Jacob and Laban, and those are the two daughters of Laban, Rachel and Leah. And here is what we know about them. We don't know a whole lot, but we know some important details. Verse 16 uh, and 17 says this. I'll read this for you. Now Laban and his, uh, had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah. The name of the younger was Rachel. Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel had a lovely figure and was beautiful. What does that mean? Well, when it says here that Leah had weak eyes, it's not referring to her sight, but rather it's speaking to her attractiveness. In other words, Rachel was beautiful and desired, and Leah was not. And so as a result, uh, Jacob, he sees Leah, or sorry, he sees uh, Rachel, and he falls madly in love with her and desires to marry her. Now, in these times, uh, a price would have been paid to the family for the right to marry their daughter. And so as a price, Jacob offers himself and his labor for seven years. Uh, in, order for, uh, in order to have the right to marry Rachel. Now, this would have been a huge and exorbitant price to pay for Rachel's hand. We know that this would equate to about four times uh, the amount that typically would have been paid to a family. Uh, in other words, Jacob has absolutely lost his mind with desire to have Rachel and to have the love of Rachel, and he's willing to literally give his entire life to try and possess her love. Why? Well, consider the context of what has brought him to Laban. 
Jacob has spent the better part of his life longing for the affection and the attention of his father. And as a result of the deceptions that he pursued uh, as an, an attempt at getting that attention from his father, as a result of those deceptions, he now has lost the one relationship that was most loving in his life, which is the love of his mother, because now he's had to leave her. I mean, he is still longing desperately longing for love and affirmation and affection. And now, as he's reeling from the loss of love from his mother, still desiring the love from his father, he now sees Rebecca. And maybe now, not Rebecca, sorry, um, so many names, Rachel. Uh, he now sees Rachel. And he now begins to throw all of these desires for affection on Rachel. If he could just have Rachel this beautiful woman that he desires, if he could have her love, then maybe that would then begin to fulfill the longings that he'd had. Now, Jacob, after uh, this outrageous offer is made for his daughter, Laban's response is actually kind of apathetic to the entire offer. Uh, in verse 19, um, after uh, Jacob has given this huge offer, it's gonna work for seven years, uh, Laban basically just says, eh, Better you than someone else. And as a result, Jacob dives in, starts working these seven years. And after those seven years uh, were done, look at what it says in verse 21. So this is Jacob having just worked seven years for Rachel. Then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife. My time is completed and I want to make love to her. Now, we've noted this before when we've looked at this passage, but translators have actually cleaned up that verse a little bit because of how abrasive and coarse and crude that statement uh, would have been. He's essentially saying, I did my time. Give me your daughter. I want to have sex with her now. And this would have been just as off-putting then as it is even for us to hear that now. But Laban, in response, he says, okay. And he plans and gathers the people for a wedding feast. Now, this feast would have been a ceremony where the bride would have been veiled uh, and the wine would have been flowing. And that's important to keep in mind because the following events then make more sense. Uh, when the time comes after the ceremony for the, uh, the couple to consummate their marriage, look at verse 23. It says this, But when evening came, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and Jacob made love to her. Brought Leah, not Rachel. And Jacob made love to her. And it wasn't until the next morning that Jacob realizes what happens. And of course, he's then very upset. And in verse 25, it says that when morning came, there was Leah. So Jacob said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? I served you for Rachel, didn't I? Why have you deceived me? Laban replied, it is not our custom here to give the younger daughter in marriage before the older one. Finish this daughter's bridal week. Then we will give you the younger one also in return for another seven years. And here's a fascinating verse. And Jacob did so. Here's why that's fascinating. Why? Why would Jacob just go along with this plan? He was just deceived. And yet he seems perfectly, he's outraged. And then all of a sudden, he goes along with it. 
He just worked seven years for Rachel. He's now tricked into marrying Leah, and he agrees to another seven years. Why is he not livid and resisting? Well, it's because of what Laban says in verse 26. Laban replied, it is not our custom here to give the younger daughter in marriage before the older one. You see what Laban's doing here. He just confronted Jacob with his own previous deceptions. In essence, Laban says, around here, the younger doesn't supplant the older. Jacob here is confronted with his own deceptions and immediately backs down. And Laban gets another seven years of free labor out of Jacob. Why? Because Jacob is still convinced after all of this that if he could just have the love of Rachel as his wife, she could then fulfill what no one else has been able to fulfill and what even now he's not convinced Leah is going to be able to fulfill. He's still got his mind set on this one thing being his fulfillment. So this story is full of deception and greed. And for Jacob, his primary deception is believing that Rachel, the one whom he has now set his affections upon, could fulfill this longing. And he continues to literally give his whole life to it. He gave his whole life for seven years. He's about to give his whole life for another seven. But while this story is in part about Jacob, His story has deeply impacted another person. Specifically, his pursuits have deeply impacted Leah. And she's the one we are going to focus on. And she's the one that shows us, secondly, the heartbreak of love. Uh, While the unfurling of the story in the coming chapters after this passage reveals the way that Jacob and Leah are both, I'm sorry, Jacob and Rachel are both impacted by all the deceptions and the schemings and the pursuits of love, the one key figure that is really treated like a pawn in this entire story is Leah. Jacob is now married to Leah, but Jacob has also, again, committed another seven years to Laban so that he can marry Rachel her sister. Can you just imagine how that must feel? Imagine what it must be like for your father and your husband to treat you this way. Leah now knows the extent to which, if she wasn't unclear about it before, she now knows the extent to which she is unloved, she is unseen, and she is unappreciated by both her father and now her husband. And given how she is treated, it's fair to assume that this could not possibly have been the first time that she has felt this way. The narration goes out of its way to show us how beautiful and desirable Rachel was. And in doing so, shows us the extent to which Leah has likely spent her entire life feeling less than, unseen, unloved, unpursued, likely longing for the same thing that Jacob longed for, love, affection, attention, and to be valued in the same way that the sibling was valued. We know Laban has certainly never given her that, 
everything points in his character points to this not being something that he cared much about. He was always in all of this to meet his own needs. And now she has a husband who never wanted her, thought little of her, and now is pursuing someone else. For what it's worth, uh, we've noted this before as we read through some of the narratives in the Bible. But when we read the Bible, uh, you can hear this story and you begin to think, this all feels really gross. This doesn't seem right. Everything in us points or looks at this story and is appalled. And if you're appalled by this entire story, just know that's exactly how you're supposed to feel. The Bible does not tell us stories as a way of showing us what we ought to do, but it's often telling us stories about uh, what actually happened and often what we should not do. When you look at stories like this, what you begin to see is that the ways that the people of God in these stories act is the exact opposite of what God desires for them. God never affirms polygamy, but rather everything that we see in the story proves the extent to which God is uh, appalled by such things because every time you see things like polygamy, it absolutely wreaks havoc on families, destroys families. And this is no different. Jacob's pursuit of Rachel, his lack of love for, for Leah, his overall selfishness in all of this wreaks havoc on this family. So now what you have here is Leah. She's left trying to figure out how to uh, experience the approval and acceptance of her husband. And for her, the only way she can think to experience that love, that affirmation from her husband who desires her sister is if she can give him children. And in verse 31 through 35, uh, we see her plight. Let me, uh, let me read parts of this, uh, that passage for you. With Leah's plight in mind, your heart breaks, my heart breaks for her as I read these passages. Verse 31 says, that when the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, he enabled her to conceive, but Rachel remained childless. Verse 32, Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Reuben, for she said, it is because the Lord has seen my misery Surely my husband will love me now. Let me pause there. Though she thought a son might cause Jacob to love her, she was mistaken because what we see in the very next verse, verse 33 says, she conceived again. And when she gave birth to a son, she said, because the Lord heard that I am not loved, she gave me this one too. So she named him Simon. Let me pause there again. So does Jacob love her now? No, look at verse 34. Again, she conceived. And when she gave birth to a son, she said, now at last my husband will become attached to me because I have borne him three sons. So she named him Levi. Does that cause Jacob to love her now? Now that she's given three sons? No. Because what does verse 35 start off with? She conceived again. Over and over, she's desperately longed for the approval and the acceptance and the praise of her husband and thought that she could do so by giving him sons. But alas, none of it came. Again, you can imagine her misery and her pain. My friends, there's, there's so much that we can learn from both Jacob and Leah, but there's one thing that we, we need to see, and it brings us back to where we started this idea of love. In both 
Jacob and Leah, we see the insufficiency of finding satisfaction in any object or goal or person. We are seeing it on full display here. And that when pursuing satisfaction and acceptance in what we claim to love, we likely will be left broken. But also, as we pursue such things, we will likely also leave other people broken. And that can happen in one of two ways. That brokenness comes in one of two ways. First, you might not attain what you sought. And so you're left always feeling like you have missed out. You know, what I mean by that is maybe you don't have the relationships or the experiences that you thought you would. That marriage partner hasn't come. Those children haven't come. And so you always have felt like, if I could just experience that, maybe that would satisfy a longing that I have within me. You know, maybe you don't have the, the success in life that you thought you would have achieved by now. The, the success that you thought, oh, if I could just achieve that one thing, then I would be accepted and maybe even loved by those that I seek approval from. And so as a result of this, you're, you're longing, looking, striving, searching, but always left wanting. And maybe even leaving you feeling used and abused by others seeking the same along the way. Maybe you're like Jacob and Leah, convinced that if you could just possess that one thing, whatever it is, you'd be valued, you'd be loved, you'd be accepted. But maybe, the other, the other potential heartbreak here, maybe even worse, maybe you might actually achieve a version of what you always wanted. You achieved that marriage or that relationship, or maybe it's even a good one. Or maybe you achieved that career accolade or that success, and so as a result, you've gotten all the recognition you could have imagined. But then you look around at what you have, what you have achieved, what you pursued, and you very quickly realize it hasn't done what you thought it was going to do. It hasn't fulfilled that longing. It hasn't given you what you thought it might. You're Jacob after Rachel. You're Leah after her sons. In the end, love and acceptance seem like nothing but a scam. Doesn't actually give you what you hoped it would. Why does it always feel like love and the pursuit of love just seem like a scam? Well, C.S. Lewis, in uh, The Weight of Glory, he's reflecting on beauty and our experiences of beauty. And I think his words there are uh, quite instructive for us as we think about why love always seems to feel like this. And this is what he says. He says, the books or the music in which we thought the beauty was located will betray us if we trust to them. It was not in them. It only came through them. And what came through them was longing. These things, the beauty, the memory of our own past, are good images of what we really desire. But if they are mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshipers. For they are not the thing itself. They are only the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a country we have not yet visited. 
In other words, the very things on which we place our affections, the things that we look to for acceptance, the things that we find beautiful, the things that we strive for, seeking validation, are nothing but dumb idols if we allow our affections to terminate on those things themselves because they don't give us love. Instead, they give us what comes through it, which is longing, which is why we're constantly longing. Whatever we've placed our affections on, we're never actually designed to bring us the love and approval and acceptance that we so desperately desired. They're simply reflections of something else that can satisfy, not the satisfaction itself. You know, the, the love I have for my wife is unparalleled in any other kind of uh, way. But she becomes a dumb idol. If my affections terminate on her, expecting her to bring satisfaction to my desire for love. Now, I love my children and love them uniquely, but they become dumb idols if my affections terminate on them, expecting them to bring the satisfaction of my desire for love. I love my job. It provides me a measure of fulfillment and acceptance, but even my job is a dumb idol. If my affections terminate, terminate on it, expecting it to bring my satisfaction or the need for satisfaction and desire for love. All of us have dumb idols in our lives that we assume are the beauty and the satisfaction that we desired. But that could not be further from the truth. None of it will ever be able to actually produce what we hope it will produce. And as Lewis said, if those things are mistaken for the thing itself, then they turn into break, uh, heart, dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshipers. And so, with that in mind, what is the thing itself? to which that thing points. What is the telos? What is the ultimate aim of the love and that desire for love that each one of us possesses? Let's consider that finally. If you remember, Leah is desperate for the approval and acceptance of her husband. And she is convinced that if she can give him a son, she will finally be loved by him. But time and time again, as we just heard, she bears a son, bears him a son, only to find his coldness remains, thus leaving her broken. But look again at verse 35. When she bears him uh, this final son here in this passage, it's fascinating. It's a fascinating end of the entire narrative. Leah, after she conceived this final time, something changed in her. We're not entirely sure how she got to this point, but something changed in her. This whole time, she wanted nothing more than the praise and approval of her husband. But she came to the end of her rope, realizing that her longing would never be satisfied and fulfilled by Jacob. And what does verse 35 tell us about what happens now? It says that she conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, this time... I will praise the Lord. And she named him Judah. Now that name Judah literally means praise. In other words, she realizes that the very thing she longed for, the affection, acceptance, validation, the thing that the, the, the fulfilling joy of being loved, 
could not be found in Jacob. He was a dumb idol. And over and over again, Jacob broke her heart. This time, though, all she realized that all that love, all that fulfilling and validating love could only come not from the praise of her husband, but rather it was only going to come as she praised the Lord. From the true beauty of uh, the one on the other side of her longing from her husband, the true bridegroom, the true husband, the Lord, the one who would never break her heart, she now begins to shift her affections off of Jacob and toward the Lord. And as a result, verse 35 concludes, then she stopped having children. From this moment, for this moment, in this moment, she lays down that longing, that striving for affection. She stops striving for the affections of her husband, the one who breaks her heart over and over again, instead now turns to the Lord and it's that point where she's now able to lay down that striving and find a measure of rest in the love of the Lord. But this is not uh, the only important uh, facet of the story of Leah. See, Jacob, as we know, he marries both Rachel and Leah. He's married to both of them. But what we see here is that God in his faithfulness first continues to work through this family by providing the heir that was promised, that was to come. The one who would carry on the line of Abraham to bring forth a nation that would bless the whole world. And who does he choose to carry on that line to bring forth the Redeemer and the Savior of all? Who brings on that line, Rachel or Leah? Well, if you read the genealogies of Matthew and Luke and later on in Hebrews 7, you see a Redeemer who comes from the line of the tribe of Judah. In Revelation 5, you see this Redeemer being called the Lion of Judah. Jesus Christ is the one who is the Lion of Judah. Jesus Christ comes from the line of Judah. He comes from the line of Leah. God chooses the forgotten, the unloved, the unseen Leah to carry on the line of Abraham and to be one of the mothers of Jesus. Again, in Revelation 5, Jesus, he's called the Lion of Judah, and the passage there points to thousands upon thousands. In Revelation 5, it says thousands upon thousands surround this heavenly throne. And you know what they're doing? This is what it says. Let me read for you Revelation 5, verse 11 and 12. This is the, uh, the Apostle John. Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands, and ten thousands times ten thousand. They encircled the throne and lived the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice, they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. And then it goes on to say, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor, glory and power forever and ever. What are they doing? They are praising, singing to this Lion of Judah. You know, this week, as I was sitting with this passage, I found myself weeping at this scene. Um, probably going to start again. Because I, I began imagining a broken Leah in, in all that deep pain and shame 
reeling over the lack of love that she desperately wanted. I imagine her with her son, Judah, after having this son, realizing that she, could, she couldn't give enough. There was nothing more that she could possibly give. And holding her son Judah, realizing that he too will not be able to give her the affections that she desired from her husband. But as she holds this little boy, I can imagine as she turns her eyes away from Jacob and begins to turn her eyes toward the Lord. And as she does, I imagine she begins to sing this soft, tear-filled song of praise. And I imagine her in this shaky and broken voice singing, to you, Lord, be praise and honor, glory and power forever and ever. And as she sings that teary, soft, broken song, I imagine the angels of heaven hearing it and beginning to join her in that song. And this whisper of a song becomes the anthem of heaven, an anthem that reminds us of the one who truly fulfills our deepest longings, the one who sits on that throne, the Lion of Judah, our Redeemer, the lover of the unloved, the seer of the unseen, the exalter of the broken, the one who always chooses Leah's, the ones who realize that they will find satisfaction, no one else, but in the beauty of our Lord. And so if you're here and you feel unloved, you feel unseen, know that God's heart is for Leah's, those who in their brokenness, in their hurt, in their shame, can turn their eyes and affections off the things of this world and begin, even with just a whisper, to say, to you, Lord, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. It's there, in that soft whisper, that we will find our deepest longings fulfilled. And I trust the grace and the mercy and the kindness and the love of our God will meet us there. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your great kindness to us. We thank you for your uh, compassion. We thank you that you are not a God who exalts the proud, but the broken. We thank you that you are a God who sees the unseen, who loves the unloved. That you're a God who, with open arms, welcomes those who lay aside their dumb idols and turn toward you. And we thank you that we see the extent of your commitment to us and our Redeemer, our Savior, Lion of Judah. God, help us to look upon Jesus with fresh eyes. Would you help us to look upon Jesus as the one who truly does fulfill all the longings that we possess? And Lord, by the power of your spirit, would you help us to stop seeing the things of this world as that which fulfills, but again, to see them as dumb idols, there are merely pointing us to something far more spectacular, far more beautiful. God, do that work in us now. We ask all this in Jesus' name.
Thank you for listening to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. For more information on our church and how you can support what God is doing through our church, go to www.reh.nyc.